So this morning we've, we've had quite a lot of quantitative information and we've had um, the German context as well. So I'm just focusing on the UK context, um, the new degree apprenticeship programmes as a pathway to the solicitor profession. Um, and, and rather than telling you about the numbers of people coming through and qualifying this route, I'm actually looking at how people experiencing this route, what are their motivations for choosing this route and were they indeed aware of it, and, and how are they experiencing it. So, uh, I'm going to begin just a little bit of background. So there's a lot of written um, on inequalities. Um, so firstly, just to say, although I'm focusing on degree apprenticeships, my actual study looks at universities as well, and I kind of evaluate both pathways. I'm not going to do that. I think it'd be a bit too ambitious in half an hour <laughs> to kind of evaluate both pathways. Um, but just to say, I'm just going to point out that we do we have had a lot of uh, literature on social inequalities in universities and access to universities and access to professions, which is generally being considered quite elite and that uh, it's not open to people from all types of backgrounds. So there's some literature there if you want to read more. Um, so we've had decades of widening participation trying to include people from different backgrounds in university and we've had that um, critiqued in terms of professions as well. And so the Social Mobility Commission, even now, producing reports saying little has actually changed despite years of uh, policy and interventions aimed to increase participation of people from different backgrounds. Um, Set and Trust report again, you know, um, uh, produced a report um, saying people, um, it's, it's not really what you know, it's who you know that's linked to um, how you get on in life and, and what you can achieve. So following on from that, uh, it just questions people's trust in higher education to, to deliver what they want in terms of graduate jobs, which we, we see university has become um, that kind of positioning for them in terms of employability, that that's your way to accessing your graduate job uh, or your dream profession. Right, so the policy context of, of apprenticeships then, um, this was reviewed um, in 2011 and 2012, and so degree apprenticeships were launched in 2015 following this. Um, more recently, the solicitor's apprenticeship in 2016 offered as a pathway, a six-year pathway, where um, you work for four days a week and you study for one day a week, um, kind of distance learning, to achieve your, your degree and thereafter your professional qualification. So it's a direct route through to full professional qualification taking all away all that kind of risk aspect of will this pay off for you. Uh, it aligns, it is designed to align with the Conservative government, um, Conservative government's industrial strategy um, to increase uh, the UK's productivity and to address labour market skills shortages. So that's, that's the idea and to put employers um, and the driving seat at the forefront of apprenticeship standards and skills development of what skills we're actually wanting people to develop for the workplace. Um, and again, you know, power helping the young people to, to develop the, the skills they need to do these high-paid, high-skilled jobs of the future. Um, again, I think we need to kind of take a bit more of a critical approach to this actually in reality, because who is it that's actually, who are these employers that are sitting in this driving seat? A very small percentage, I think like 1.3% of, of UK firms are actually 
in that driving seat saying what these skills should be. These are the big employers that probably employ you know, over 50% of the people, but um, um, probably as in, in the German context, actually a lot of uh, the um, a lot of the employers are SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprise, and they're not having much of a say and not engaging very much with this process. So this has been critiqued by McEwen. Um, in addition to saying that um, a lot of the smaller enterprises are finding it, I don't know if they're finding it difficult, but there are barriers to their participation. Even though there's funding from the government now standing at like 95% of the costs of training, um, is met for these non-levy paying firms, there is still kind of a lack of engagement. Is it that they can't fund a six, they can't commit to a six year pathway, that this pathway to full qualification solicitors is a six year pathway, perhaps that's too much for small employers, or maybe they just don't have the jobs, they, you know, there isn't the demand for these skills at the moment, perhaps it's just a bit too precarious for small firms, you know, I don't really know because that's obviously more of a study to be done, but there is a lack of uptake uh, amongst the smaller and medium-sized enterprise. Um, and also, particularly important, given that it could be a model for widening participation, increasing social mobility uh, for people from poorer backgrounds, and, um, but 54% of the young degree apprentice entrants are actually from high education advantaged areas. So. This is, again, more of what we're used to seeing as a middle-class grab for the lucrative opportunities. So that's a bit of the policy context, which I'm not going to focus anymore, just to give you a bit of background to it. Um, my study is looking at, well, who is, you know, who's making these choices between going to university or going to take the degree apprenticeship, because it seems like a no-brainer to me that in this... Um, situation that we have today of high student debt and people from poorer backgrounds maybe being debt averse, perhaps putting them off to going to university, why would you not take this pathway which gives you a job, you can earn, get a degree as well and full professional qualification, I think you'd take it, wouldn't you? Yeah? But actually the research has shown that it's a middle class <coughs> opportunity and that people perhaps through risk aversion are still choosing to go to university and the numbers you know they show no limit in people uh, going to university to do law degrees right so the research question then so how are university and solicitor apprenticeship routes into the solicitor profession understood experienced and negotiated by individuals from different backgrounds so i'm looking at opportunities and barriers and their own perceptions as well so what factors influence uh, participants motivations to pursue their chosen route what are the influences there and what motivates them, how do they understand the opportunities and barriers to their chosen route and how they negotiate Very brief overview of my methodology, so it's qualitative. Um, somebody asked me what my overarching framework was but I'm doing a critical realist approach, hence looking at, not here, but looking at statistics, looking at policy and then actually looking at empirical data as well. Um, so I've got law students uh, from an elite and non-elite routes, which is contentious, I know, I'm aware of that, <laughs> yeah. So elite universities, that probably gets up a lot of people's noses, and uh, probably quite rightly. Um, but I wanted to have something where I could contrast um, different routes. So in the UK, you know, we have a very highly stratified university sector, 
probably due to you know the massification um, that I've referred to in the early literature, where in the latter half of the 20th century we've had a, you know, a huge increase in the number of students going to university. And that's kind of resulted in people trying to you know, differentiate the university sector and justify their market position. Um, and so we have uh, elites, you know, Russell groups, even higher than that, you know, Golden Triangle universities. I think it even changes even beyond that. You have a certain select, kind of self-appointed, really, um, elite structure. And, and then the, the post-1992, which, again, you can even dissect that further into clusters, and I think you bought Bolivar's work, um, into clusters of universities. So if you're interested in that, there's uh, a lot of work into this elite, non-elite, and the effect of that on the outcomes of students as well, and particularly their employability or where they go to study in the future. So that's definitely something to be watching for in the future. Um, I've also, so I'm ca capturing law students, um, three years of a law degree, I'm capturing them first, second and third year, different people. So it is a snapshot, I'm not following any one individual. People that have already been through the university system and they're now sitting pretty on their training contract, so they've got the two year training contract process to go through and then they're a qualified solicitor, so people that have gone through the university system and come out the other side. And people that have chosen the sister apprenticeship route as well. So they're very young, they're the first cohort, we don't have anybody that's completed the cycle yet. Um, they've started in 2016, so it's still very new, and they've got six years to go through. As you can see, well, you can't see yet. <laughs> um, yeah, I've done semi-structured interviews, and my initial analysis was inductive thematic coding. Obviously, I've developed it based on the literature since then. Uh, an overview of um, the background of my participants. So I've got elite universities, non-elite universities, just for simplicity's sake, we'll stick with that. Um, and apprenticeships, I've tried to do the same thing, although it's very, very difficult. Because of the issue earlier, of saying that it was difficult to engage SME organisations in the apprenticeship, we tend to have an overrepresentation of large elite firms. And so, it's mostly large elite firms that I've managed to find. Um, interested in my data and how long it took me to get, I was banging my head for a year trying to get engagement and just getting 23 interviews, trying to engage with students and apprentices. It was really, really tough. I think I managed to, my supervisor said I'd managed to capture something like 8% of the actual population that was aspiring to be a solicitor at the time. So I'm not trying to be statistically representative, but I think actually I probably have something worthwhile to say given um, the statistics. Um, Non-elite apprenticeships, no working class people at all, but then again, a very underrepresented group of uh, non-elite apprentice firms. <coughs> Themes arising from my inductive approach. Um, applying to both the university and the apprenticeship route. Overarching theme of risk, which seemed to cross over with other um, aspects as well, such as employability and the cost. Because a lot of these qualifications, once you're through your law degree, are self-funded. Unless a lot of universities now are managing to hook it into a master's so they can get the postgraduate 
student funding. So some universities are managing to do that. Um, so you can have an LLM qualification that also counts as uh, qualifying um, LPC, legal practice course. Um, respect of the route as well. It was so interesting. I, I thought it was no-brainer that working class students would really snap the arm off you know, the degree apprenticeship provider. A lot of people haven't even heard of the route, they didn't know about it. But even then, even when I explained it to them, how it would work and how attractive it was, they thought they weren't sure it was so new, would this go like nursing apprenticeships where it wouldn't be respected or it would be dropped? You know, what was the longevity of the route? Would it have any power beyond the firm that they'd qualified into? So all these things were playing into, the, you know, obviously they've not featured in their decision making because they hadn't known about it. but. It was still very interesting about how they looked at it and how they perceived that route had they known about it. On the other hand, the middle class people that I spoke to that have chosen that apprenticeship route, for them, they thought it just took away all that risk. They didn't have to, it was only a bonus actually that they didn't have to pay for it. The most important thing for them was getting that job, that they were only going to do the law degree, it was a hoop to jump through. Not that they were particularly interested in doing the university experience, it was a hoop to jump through, get another level of education to get to where they wanted to be. And so the degree apprenticeship group did that for them. It just took away all that. They could learn on the job. It was all relevant to what they were studying, uh, pretty much as, as you say in the, in the experiential learning model, which they found very beneficial to them, helped their studies, and most importantly, gave them that direct pathway guaranteed to qualify into their profession. So again, that all links with respect and uncertainty, employability, and it was a bonus. I think this was a very important thing for a six-year uh, degree apprenticeship pathway with no stop-off points when you're going in 18 years old. You know, we say, you know, there's an opportunity cost, maybe you're not keeping your options open by going to university, you could change your mind and perhaps do other things. If you're Staying, starting at the outset of going to be a solicitor at 18, you're almost caught in an opportunity trap that, you know, how are you going to change? What else are you going to do? But there were instances of people kind of mourning the, the experience that they might have had had they gone to university as well. So, yeah, so there were trade-offs and um, that's something that I play on in my paper as well. So I want to, um, I'm just introducing this now, you've probably heard of the capabilities approach before in our human development context, often with the Global South. It's increasingly being used uh, to critique higher education in, in the um, Western context. But I don't think it's been used in the context of degree apprenticeships yet, or even the legal profession. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying it out and I'm testing it with my data. So there might be flaws with this, and if you are somebody who uses the capabilities approach, do speak to me afterwards, but uh, you know, do present me with any tips or anything you can think that would be useful, or if you really don't think it works at all with this, just let me know. Um, Martha's, Martha Nisbam and um, Amarita Sen, can I pronounce his name? <coughs> have developed this theory, and it's a counter theory to dominant theories that influence influencing policy choices. So it's hoping to inform policy rather than just be another kind of theory and a, and a way of looking at uh, your data. It seeks to actually respect and empower people. 
and to steer policy choices towards those that respect the equality and dignity of each individual rather than, say, groups of individuals. It's concerned with entrenched social injustice and inequality and capability failures resulting from discrimination or marginalisation. It's focused on the choice or freedoms that people can choose or choose not to be based on commitment to respect people's powers of self-determination, what's not to like. So it's really concerned with what people are actually able to do and to be and what real opportunities are available to them. So rather than just saying, well, it is, it's equal access, it's equal opportunities, we can all do this. How does it actually work for each person? So a bit more detail. It represents the freedoms or opportunities for people to achieve outcomes that they have reason to value. And I've highlighted that because also that's quite a contentious thing as well. What do we value? And what do people value? And why do they value that? Do they want to be solicitors or barristers because they've seen silks? And who are we to argue that that's not a valid reason for valuing something? You know, if all their friends value that too and they do, or is it because it's, it's really highly paid profession, it's really respected and it sets you up for life. You know, what do they value? Do they have a good reason to value it? No, they, their background says that, you know, they're not going to be a success, so we're going to write off their chances, or do we just try to embrace it and try and help people through that, something that they value, to try and help them achieve that? And look at their obstacles, and look at policy ways that things can be overcome. I'm still not altogether comfortable with this, how we deal with what they value and how we measure that and can we be you know can it be everything to everybody you know measuring value so an individual's capabilities can be constrained or enhanced by various factors and your access to financial resources your knowledge or degree of knowledge that you have um, of ways of doing something or what's important societal norms such as you know, it's normal in this society to go to university rather than to go and do an apprenticeship. Isn't it when you drop out at 14 or 16? That's the norm for going to do an apprenticeship. So what do societal norms push you into? And also depending on the opportunities that are available to you and the degree of individual agency that you can exercise. So Nussbaum suggests that collections of capabilities should be defined by which individuals can measure their lives in terms of flourishing. Now I have difficulties with this because there isn't a set of capabilities already designed to look at my particular situation, my research. So I've kind of just hooked on to one <laughs> that uh, Wilson Stridham has done in relation to successful access to higher education. So I've looked at that one and picked out some, again it's quite subjective, just me looking and thinking well, that, would, that would be relevant here. So there may be if you're wanting to help with this development of this article, you could suggest other capabilities that would be important or think, well, I can't see how that one works, Caroline. You've been a bit overly subjective there and it doesn't work for me. So there we go, a table of, so I was trying to squeeze it onto a slide there. Capabilities um, one, four, five and six I've picked out from the list of seven. And here's the description of them. Um, knowledge links to the practical reason, being able to make your well-reasoned, informed, critical, independent and reflective choices, just knowing what your options are. You know, I found in my study, you know, well, I've got some data that will show that, but it's very variable. It's not equal access to information and knowledge at all. And so people that were in better resourced schools, particularly private schools, 
have you know, access to, to limitless resources and other people, you know, opportunities that were in London that only people in London and one person outside of London had accessed, which really helped inform their decision making. Why, why are these things not available to everybody? So very, very important. Social relations and networks, even for people just to socialise, let alone be part of a community of practice, is really important. Um, friendships and belonging and mutual support. Respect, dignity and recognition. You're not being diminished or devalued. And I had experience of, of this on the degree of friendship, but also people even in elite universities from widening participation backgrounds that have been treated, you know, like they shouldn't be there really. I haven't put the quotes in from university, but it really makes you cross. <laughs> so uh, I've just kind of put it in, but you know, having a voice and being able to participate effectively in working and learning, etc., and not being subject to anxiety or fear, which diminishes learning and, and your own confidence again. So these are ones that I thought featured and would be valuable in developing that capability list to kind of thrive and have your well-being and feel that you were thriving in something that you valued. So we are sharing these slides by the way as well. Um, you've got a copy of them which you might not be able to see because the print's quite small but uh, obviously they're going to be available. So what we're looking at is like well-being, flourishing and success of apprentices um, in particular today. So mapping onto that again, knowledge and practical reason, knowledge of the different pathways was limited for many and it did constrain the ability of individuals to make their well-informed choices, which seemed to be so important, obviously, for setting them on the pathway of what they're going to be doing for the next few years. Um, job security and having a funded degree as a direct pathway to full professional qualification was very important. Um, the geographic distribution of opportunities this was very patchy. A lot of the opportunities, because it's the larger firms that are involved, tend to be based in London or in large regional centres, so Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds. So if you're living outside of that, maybe you're living in Essex or Norwich, or somewhere that's far flung from a centre of you know, legal opportunity, you know, what opportunities are actually going to be open to you? Even though you might have the qualifications and be able to fit the entrance criteria, incidentally for the degree apprenticeship it's ABB available. I don't have any data because I've not spoken to firms as part of my study on whether they would make a contextual offer to somebody from a widening participation background but I've got anecdotal kind of stuff just through probing on LinkedIn um, speaking to partners of law firms about whether they would take that approach. They take it in the round that's not a cast iron guarantee that they do that. It's not policy, is it? Somebody saying that they would look at the whole package. But perhaps it's something that could inform policy that maybe they should. If they, this could be a vehicle for widening participation. If universities have taken that on board to make contextual offers, perhaps apprenticeships could do that too. Um, so the anxiety and fear was, um, and the risk of an unsuccessful outcome. People. Um, I'm not doing the um, possible future selves in this, but it's something that I'm going to be looking at, but that definitely figures. People are motivated by their fear of what they would become, um, the degree, you know, have the degree but not have the job, have the student debt, that was something that they really wanted to avoid and it was very motivational. And to have dignity and respect for their pathway. Um, employers did, other people didn't necessarily, a lot of people hadn't heard of it and there was some tension with elite trainees 
in Vic London firms. So I'm going to go into my data now with that bit of uh, theoretical background and policy background. So the knowledge and reason, linking back to the theory. So one um, working class apprentice in a non-elite firm, which was unusual, didn't have many of those, got ABB at A-level. His access to information, he stumbled across it on social media. He'd put himself into an elite sixth form, which incidentally, I've just happened to know that one, they kick you off the course if your grades aren't up to scratch. So you just go there, it's an A-level in a sixth form college. But if you're not performing, they boot you out of college. So you know, some of them get their elite, kind of elite status by you know, managing it and manipulating it. Um, they had trips to Cambridge to look around, to have, have the aspiration for going to university and elite universities. So he was all set to do that, found out about, you know, work experience and was very proactive in getting himself onto programmes, but stumbled across, you know, the, the um, apprenticeship just on social media and decided to go with it. And another apprentice, an elite, in an elite London firm, was all set to go to an elite university, had done the same thing, done work experience at firms since the age of 13, just volunteering. And um, when she was the only person from not from not inside London to go on this program where they had different law firms milling around showing them about their different opportunities and running activities for them. <coughs> and uh, somebody just said, Why don't you think about our apprenticeship program? And so she did, and she's not looked back. And we, we see more of her motivation for that um, in, a, in a bit. So again, the perceptions she's alluding to, you know, you've turned your nose up at it because it was seen as a lesser pathway and we're still kind of over, trying to overcome that perception. Social networks and belonging. So somebody's talking here about, you know, they're not having a social life. This person's got a four hour commute every day because they don't live in London. They're on an apprenticeship salary, not very much. So they can't afford to live independently and they don't know anybody in London. So they've got to commute and live at home. So he doesn't really get to, to go do the socialising that his friends are doing at university. So there's some kind of trade-off. He's got that job, he's going to have his degree funded, and he's got the guaranteed pathway, but he doesn't have that social life. Uh, Dillis also lived and had a lived outside of London and had a four-hour daily commute. And she was justifying it by saying she could work on the train. She's going to make it work because it's sheer determination to make it work. Study on the train and still have time for a social life. So she's making it work. But our other person, Callum, recognises that perhaps it's not sustainable for six years. It's finding it really, really draining. And particularly when he's seeing the hours that the people that are actually qualified are putting in. And sometimes it's overnight. Not every night, but sometimes they're working until 7am in the morning uh, to get jobs done because they're expected to be married to their jobs, basically. So there is the kind of you know, perception from some of them that can they actually keep that up or would they want to? You know, what kind of toll is that going to have on your well-being? And fearing the future, it is so competitive. Somebody was mentioning, you know, could people actually get a job? It is so, so competitive. Very much the elite law schools are fast-tracked into the elite law firms, but it's very much a corporate world. 
I don't know if it would work the same for criminal law, family law, conveyancing. You know, I don't expect that um, they will be kind of tapped into elite law firm, elite law schools in the same sort of way. But um, I'm at York and I know that they have very good connections with the law firms who seem to be tripping over themselves to go and network with the students that are there and very much see it as a recruitment hunting ground. But it's very, very competitive. Other universities don't have that relationship at all. And if they're not an elite firm, the law firms aren't particularly interested in speaking to them. So um, here we go. They were going to university just to get the law degree. They wanted to be the lawyer. The thought of you know that competitive environment and it not working out for them terrified them. It's such a huge investment, not just in money, but their whole time and those opportunities that they could have been pursuing elsewhere. But it gives them some security for the next year. They've got it all mapped out and that's what they want. Again, this is Dillis. Um, also, invested quite a bit in this character. <laughs> so she's only young, but very determined. Um, all the people, she's getting a lot of support from her firm, but they study one day a week, and so in London, they probably go to their actual apprenticeship provider, of which is very limited, one or two providers. So we're probably looking at the University of Law and BPP, probably nobody else, so very few providers. Um, and they're, you know, been a bit derogatory about the pathway and that it's not the same, it's not comparable. You might be a solicitor, but we're a trainee and we're already getting £40,000 a year. So, But I think because of the support that she's getting by her firm, that they're interested in it and they want it to work, and everybody should be doing this pathway, she feels supported. And I think that's important. So just to summarise there, there is a limited knowledge of the pathways. It is a constraint on people's, you know, being able to find out what opportunities there are. The societal norm and the role of schools in feeding access to, um, to information and opportunities, and particularly things like work experience, where people can, they can kind of break that barrier, really, of information by getting outside of the school, getting into firms and seeing what other pathways do you have, just seeing it. Um, it's very important there. People, you know, the people that were the most successful, in, and this was both for both pathways, the people at university who did make it work for them, were the people that already had a very good idea, and we talk in terms of Bordeaux Capitals, they were already quite well set up before they even went to university, for instance, but even people that had been apprentices, not everybody, but Dillis in particular, you know, she knew what she wanted to do, and so they can be quite strategic and driven in knowing what they're wanting from a situation. The role of family and social networks, again, it influences people's expectations. They can smooth the passage for them, really. They can um, put people up in London. You might have a, an uncle or a brother or a cousin that's living in London. We have, I have this in the data that people were able to, to take advantage of work experience placements in London by staying over with people. Um, and this is important because there aren't, there aren't the opportunities throughout the country. It's not evenly distributed. There's a concentration in London because that happens to be where the most you know, law firms are, particularly the big firms that are involved with this. Um, resources, financial resources, um, apprenticeships, wages for 18-year-olds, uh, not very high, um, below the living wage, 
although some firms they do pay more than this and might pay upwards of £20,000. Um, but it does limit the choice and, and, and ability of people from disadvantaged backgrounds to take up opportunities, um, and particularly in London where opportunities are concentrated. The perceptions of the pathway, I think the organisational culture does have a beneficial role to play in supporting uh, perceptions and the esteem of apprentices who may, they may, they will encounter negativity when, when you do have two pathways and one's perceived as more elite, you don't want people going away thinking it's not going to work for them. So firms need to make sure that uh, it's not just going to be like a limiting pathway where you're going to get in, but you're not going to get on. So, so some recommendations. Um, greater focus on creating opportunities for disadvantaged individuals while still at school to ensure access to information, work experience and mentors to better inform decision making on post-school options. Now, I know this is not the only purpose of an education, just not just to kind of set you up, on the, on it, but it's got to be, it can't be ignored, you've got that opportunity where everybody's captured. Let's try to do something about equality of access to information. Apprenticeship levy funding to be adapted to increase involvement of non-levy payers, which represent the majority of firms and organisations, to open up degree apprenticeship opportunities into other sectors. As I say, it's dominated by commercial law, corporate law, things that are really lucrative and why that's why firms are interested in them. Um, open it up to other areas that smaller firms are engaged in and other geographic locations, so that there's an opportunity for people across the country to, you know, maybe we don't all want to be corporate lawyers and we haven't all seen silks. Perhaps we do want to do something that's kind of more socially valuable. Um, and to have perhaps financial assistance for degree apprenticeships, similar to student finance, so that perhaps they could live more independently away from their homes and their families to take up opportunities and try to make things work for them. I think I'm rather, finished rather early there, so. No, that's great.